Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. I did think for a while, how on earth am I going to start this? And for like quite a while, I thought I was going to shout fear into the mic and scare people. And then like, have you have that feeling and then use that as an example. But then I didn't want to deal with the consequences of those actions. So uh, instead, I thought I would share um, from my childhood, I actually was a very timid child. I was, nev- I was not always uh, the big boy you see now. I was, I was quite a timid child. Like I was scared of so many different things. And a really weird one I was scared of was I, was, I had a phobia of balloons for the longest time as a child. And I, to, to explain, it wasn't the balloon itself, it was the fact that it, if it pops, it makes a loud sudden noise. And I hated that. Like, I couldn't deal with thunder and I couldn't deal with fireworks. And they're okay because thunder, we don't really get that often in the UK. And fireworks is only once a year. And even then, like, they are pretty and you can cover your ears and it's great. But balloons, as a kid, you go to so many different parties and all of these parties would just be covered in balloons. And like, there would always be a fear of, if one of these pops, I'm gonna run out screaming because I, I don't wanna deal with it. Like, it was a genuine phobia I had of, I, like, if a balloon was in a room, I would run out. I, I would, yeah, like that, I would not, I was just about to say, I've gotten over that fear, thank you. <laughs> I've grown up and now I brace myself. <laughs> so cheeky. Um, but it was, it was an irrational fear for so long. But again, I got over that because after a while you just, you know, you get used to it and you desensitize yourself to it. And I grew up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it just shows that we are not strangers to fear at all. Everyone in this room has an experience from these massive phobias or like life-threatening things to like the social awkwardnesses of, you know, interacting with people. There is fear in everyday life and it's something we're all very aware of. And it also has this kind of like debilitating power as well. It stops us from doing things and makes us second guess things. But God has not given us fear. And what's more, he gives us hope, which is what he does here for the Israelites who have lived in this state of fear and Elijah's come now to give them hope. Now, I, I set this up so that I go through the entire chapter because we're given the sheet and we're said, right, you have to do this chapter. This is the title, Go Nuts. And I remember looking through the chapter and thinking, how can I narrow this down? And how can I like, you know, get to the key bits, the good, the juicy bits? And I remember going through the chapter and I thought, I've got to do the whole thing because none, none of this seemed like irrelevant. Like you need to go through the entire story and see this journey that Elijah goes through to confront Ahab. And I thought it was important to go through the entire thing. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. Not all in one go. I'm going to like split it into chunks and explain it. But I'm going to go through the whole chapter. So if you want to bring up 1 Kings chapter 18, that is the book and the chapter I'm going to be going through. And to give a little bit of context first, Elijah has already talked to King Ahab. Uh, Ahab is the king of the Israelites. And Elijah has brought this warning of a famine, and which has come true. Uh, because prophets in those days would come to the kings and depending on the king would either, would either bless them or like bring disaster upon them or like give a message of warning. And a lot of these kings were wicked, so oftentimes it was a message of disaster. And Ahab was no different. And basically what Ahab has done is he's searching the nation for Elijah because he'd given this um, message about a famine. And Elijah's now in hiding. And there's this guy named Obadiah. 
And Obadiah is a servant in charge of the palace, and he's also a devoted follower of God. And he's been sent out by Ahab to look for grass for his horses and mules, which, first of all, says a lot about him as a king, that he is, there is a famine in the land, and he's looking for grass for his horses and mules. Make sure they're well-fed before he ever thinks about his people and what they're going through. So we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, and then going to go all the way to 15. So as Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah, he asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested, what harm have I done to you that you are sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear to the truth of his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. But as soon as I leave you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. When Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I hid 100 of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah's here. Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty, in whose presence I stand, that I present myself to Ahab this very day. It's, it says a lot about the king as well, that simply telling the king Elijah's here was like sending Obadiah to his death. Like Ob Obadiah here is begging for his life. He's saying, sir, I'm, I'm a devoted follower. Please do not make me go do this. I will surely die. That's how scary Ahab was. And if you wanted more context on that, uh, if you look through the book of Kings, uh, there were many kings in Israel who had done evil in the Lord's sight. That's the phrase that's repeated. They had done evil in the Lord's sight. And this is because they sinned, they worshiped idols, and in general, they brought Israel to turmoil. And when King Ahab is introduced to us in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 30, it says that not only did he do evil in the Lord's sight, but he did it more than any other king before him. Furthermore, he marries Jezebel, who is this Sidonian woman who introduced to him and the nation of Israel this idol called Baal. And he began worshipping this idol and built te temples. So now some Israelites have started turning towards Baal as well. And like we saw here in these verses, she even got out to try and kill the Lord's prophets as well. And as it says in chapter 16, verse 33 in 1 Kings as well, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. What a great first impression <laughs> of who Abraham is. And you can now see why the prophets were so terrified of this king. And that's because these visible threats, these visible dangers are easier to react to and respond to than an invisible God. It's easy to forget that. And what Elijah does here in this chapter is he reveals this invisible God to them. He reminds them of his presence. That even though this king is so wicked, that there is a God who is greater than that. And under Ahab, these prophets have been under a threat of death. And they've been forced to retreat and to hide in fear of their own lives. But Elijah is bringing hope in this situation. He's going to confront Ahab. Because, and you know what, they both did it. Because Obadiah went and tell, told Ahab. He fought down his own fear and went to tell Ahab about Elijah. Because they both feared God more than Ahab. And when I say fear, I mean the Hebrew word yira. Which also means worship and to revere. To have respect, to awe, have awe be in awe. They had a greater fear of God, a greater reverence of God, that he is sovereign over their earthly king. 
And as Elijah marches into this meeting with Ahab, there is this sense of hope. And it will be dangerous. It is under a threat of death, but he is going to confront Ahab and bring him into account. And Obadiah does the right thing despite his fear. Something sometimes we regret. So, moving on to verse 16. So, Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bowls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I, I will prepare the other bull and set it, lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Elijah was not just confronting Ahab in the situation. He's confronting the whole of Israel. All of Israel was summoned for this great showdown. And his actions were based on this holy boldness. And this, this such courage shown by Elijah to call out all of Israel is because he was in the Lord's presence. As we saw in verse 15, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. He is confident and hopeful about this confrontation because he stands in the presence of the Lord. As Joshua 1 verse 9 says, this is my command, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous in doing the Lord's work. Take hope for he is with you. And fear itself is not a sin, right? Like, a fear, if you're a little squeamish around spiders, that's not a sin, okay? But it is a sin if it causes distrust or an unbelief in what God has for you. When it separates you from his promise, that's when it becomes a sin. And that was the deal, that was the case for Israel. They had all become so, feel, they're so fearful, it had separated them from God and his promises. And I especially love the line, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. He makes it so simple. If the Lord is God, follow him. This should not be complicated. Fear makes us forget or worship these other things. And while we may not have like this experience of other gods, which might not be relevant today, but we have plenty of other things we place our hope and our reliance in. We look to these things as a backup, just in case God isn't who he says he is. And 1 John 4 verse 17 to 18 as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. And this is the key part. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Take the time to fully experience his perfect love that expels fear. When we do finally take the time to try and experience his love, Sometimes, this is especially true for me, it's rushed or I put minimal effort into it. I don't try to experience it to the full. And not doing it properly, properly means you aren't going to receive that perfect love properly. 
Like, because they had these idols, it was, it's a split-down decision. You follow God, you follow Baal. You can't follow those two things. And, I mean, what's interesting about that verse is we could put any idol instead of Baal that fights for our attention. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if money is God, then follow it. If your job is God, then follow it. If that celebrity is God, then follow them. The first commandment is that God is first, to follow him and him alone. What causes you to hobble, to just to be split between these two things? What causes your opinion to waver? And this is why the people were silent. They were far too afraid to answer back or to stand up in public and declare that they were faithful. They did not share the same hope that Elijah did that day. But Elijah's brought this hope. He stood up to Ahab, fighting down his own fear because God had called him to do so. And because of this, because Elijah knew he had God with him, there was nothing to fear. This is the ultimate test. Who is right? Both sides have agreed this is fair. Everyone said this is the fair test. And this is to show whoever wins is the prophet of the one true God. So the prophets of Baal are going first in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves in knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. I really love that last line as well. No sound, no response, no reply. And NIV goes a bit further. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It just shows how empty these idols were. They are empty and hollow. There's so much we devote our lives to that give us no response, no sound, no reply. It makes you think about what interest your idols have for you. For example, uh, you could say that social media could be an idol for some people. I get that everyone says that now, but it's so relevant and it is a huge idol that people struggle with, especially for me that it's something we devote our time and our energy to, whether you like it or not, that is an idol. And when you devote your time and energy to something like social media, if you turn to it in times of trouble, you're not going to find the answers you're looking for. Because, why? Because it's an empty idol. You're devoting yourself to something that's not going to devote anything to you. God gives results. You reap what you sow. And I also find it quite interesting that the Baal prophets, they cut themselves as a normal custom. That's a normal custom. That's the thing they did. That was a practice. That was a ritual they did. It's just an example of how harmful and sadistic these idols were. Like, when you, when I, when you say something like they called on the, the name of Baal, you just think, oh, it's just a different name. But no, these were inhuman practices they were doing and actions in the name of that idol. And sometimes these idols, they can be harmful to us. They can't do us any good. Now, I get to talk about it the moment when Elijah starts mocking these prophets. And I love this moment in the Bible. It might be the funniest thing ever. And even when I was a kid, I thought, this is so random and, like, so out of place. Like, he just mocks them and says, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is believing himself, which is just a fancy old term saying of he's on a different throne. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. Like, these, he's just insulting these people. 
This is a huge thing. This is a big deal. This is the fate of Israel. And Elijah's making jokes? What's the deal? Are we called to make fun of people? Well, no. It's saying, it shows that Elijah has this utter confidence in his own God. He is so confident that he will do good that it's turned into cocky. Like, it's a smugness, this excessive pride, but not of himself or his own achievements, but in what God is doing against this idol, that God is so much greater and his achievements are greater. He was not overconfident or arrogant in God's ability, as we continue later in these verses. From verse 30, Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He made this a very public spectacle. Everyone needs to see this. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said. And the water ran round the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord our God, and that you have brought them back to life. Back to yourself, sorry. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from the heavens and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. There was no question about it. The Lord is God. And what makes this challenge so symbolic is that this was a burnt offering. This was how they competed. And I want to say, first of all, this is speculative. This isn't like explicitly stated, but it was something I thought about and I thought it's interesting to share. So burnt offerings were tradition in the days of Moses. Uh, Leviticus goes into greater detail, but uh, burnt offerings were when they offered like a lamb or a bull, uh, some sort of like animal that was clean without defect and they would burn it. And this was a sign of atonement and it not acknowledged that I was sinful. And it, it was a renewing of their relationship with God. It was a sign of this renewing. I want to renew this relationship. I've done wrong. Please, God, answer me. Which makes this really interesting that he, Elijah's offering a burnt offering. Sorry, is offering a burnt offering. And it's even greater that God lit the fire. Yeah, that Elijah built this altar that represented Israel, as you can see with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, and that God lit that fire, that this relationship was renewed again with Israel. That when we come to him broken and wanting renewal, God gave it to the most unworthy of people. You do not need to fear judgment when you do wrong, because Jesus was that offering for us. We don't have to fear death or judgment, for he has died on the cross and bridged the gap sin made. We can have that renewed relationship, that hope amongst all that fear. What's also interesting about the altar is the trench that he digs. And it's, I'm, I'm assuming the, the prophets about didn't do this. They said they did their normal thing, but it doesn't say what they do. But I imagine it wouldn't be drowning their meat in a three-gallon trench of water. And it just makes it impossible that this could not be lit by earthly means. This could not be done by earthly means, only through God. And that's the hope Elijah revealed, that while the Israelites were limited by earthly things, 
God reigns over it and can do the impossible. Why should you fear earthly things when your God is above them? He's not limited by them. Putting all his faith and trust in God's ability to do the impossible gave God the room to display his power in the impossible. The prophets were scared. Elijah brought them hope and reaffirmed what they already knew, that the Lord is God. He brought hope in a time of fear. And I realized I went through the entire chapter and it can be exhausting to uh, go through it all, but it is a really great chapter. And while many people, you know, they go through different points and like bullet point it and all that, I love that kind of thing. But for this, I only came up with one point. And um, it's a famous quote, actually, uh, that really relates to our situation and what we as Christians should fear. And that is, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And many of you know that line. You've probably heard of it somewhere. What many of you may not have known was this was said by Franklin Roosevelt in his first inaugural speech as president in 1932, which was during the Great Depression, a very troubling time to become president. And this, the nation was facing an economic crisis, and they needed a leader who could bring both hope and a solution in the middle of it. Sound familiar? And Roosevelt was elected right in the middle of it. And this speech was designed to give hope and encouragement in a time of fear. And you may not have heard the rest of the speech, actually, because he goes on to describe the type of fear we should be scared of. So, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. This fear has a paralyzing and debilitating ability to stop us from advancing forward and causing us to retreat. That it's nameless, there's no reason for it. it there's no, you can't justify it in your mind. It's just something that paralyzes you. And that's something we can all, we can all, we've all experienced before. As Romans 7, verse 14 to 17 says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Sometimes we want to do the right thing, and we have the greatest of intentions to go do it, but we just don't. And it reminds me, um, Excel yesterday, it was a really great conference. And one of the things the preacher said was, uh, we need, as much as we need intention, we also need direction. Like if you said you wanted to go to London and started walking up north to Scotland, you may have every intention of getting to London, but you're not gonna get there. You're not in going in the right direction. And this is what the preacher said, was you need the direction as well as the intention. You could have the best intentions at heart, but if it's not put into action and not in the right direction, you're not gonna get to where you need to be, to where you want to be, where you're intending. And this is especially true for me for, well, I mean, we've all experienced fear in different ways, but a really common one I experience is procrastination, which it might be surprising to realize is in the root of fear. It's this fear of failure, this fear of overwhelming problems. And it's so relevant today. And I often get, like, when I experience procrastination, it's often when I have a bunch of tasks in a small, like, window of time, in a smaller window of time. And what happens is I'll be on reels or something for, like, hours because I, I just want to ignore it. I want to push it aside. I, I can't do it. But by, like, using up that time, by wasting it, I've already shortened my window even further. And by shortening that window, now I'm panicking even more and overwhelmed even more. So of course, now I'm gonna procrastinate even more. 
And now that I've procrastinated even more, I now have less time, and so on and so forth as this cycle perpetually repeats, as you have less and less time to do the thing you were supposed to do, and panicking and being overwhelmed by it. Inaction causes the situation to get worse, and it's the same spiritually. If there are temptations you need to deal with, there's a verse in the Bible you need to read. If there's things you need to do, and you're afraid of doing them, and you just you push it aside for later, it's unhealthy. And you're not, you're not doing the thing that spiritually you may have the intention of doing if you never do it. It's like mens rea and actus reus, which is a criminal law thing. I'm bringing in my criminology degree now. Uh, where you need an act and you need an intention. You can't be guilty of just an intention. You need to have an act along with it. In the same way, you need an act along with that intention. And that is how hope comes in. And it reminds me of a, li uh, a line from Dune, which is, well, a book and a movie. And the line written by Frank Herbert is, fear is the mind killer. Fear is, kills the mind. It, all rationality and logic are out the window if fear is involved. Fight or flight is an instinct for a reason. There's, there's no time to think. And, you know, fear can have this debilitating ability. It just kills every intention we have. So, how do we respond to fear? Well, we know one thing about fear. God does not give us it. And... This was an especially um, impactful verse for me because, like I said, I was a very timid kid. And I remember mum taught me this verse, and it was something I repeated whenever I was scared. And it was 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Not only has he not given us fear, he's given us the three things that defeat it. Power, love, and a sound mind. And sometimes you may need that verse repeated, like I did. And sometimes you may need... Just that encouragement, sometimes to repeat it in your mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Just to repeat those words and to be encouraged and strengthened by them, as I needed. And it almost begs the question, how do we respond to fear? How, I mean, we're all going to experience it, that's not the question. How do we respond to it? And there are a couple of ways of thought of. So, for example, a common question for fear is, what if? Right? Like you tr it's like a Murphy's Law kind of thing. What if this or what if that it's it's like the worst case scenario if i do this thing what if this happens and a really simple thing to do for me is to answer that question with another question so what like uh for example uh let's say what if the spider starts crawling towards me well i'm bigger and more powerful than it is and i'm armed with a vacuum cleaner so you know that that's an irrational fear i'm perfectly capable of dealing with it what if um, I get the vaccine and it hurts? So what? It's only going to hurt for like a second. Like, this was how I dealt with most of my fears. It's so what? It's not that big of a deal. Because our mind has this ability to exaggerate, to just make it this huge, huge thing that it isn't. And then, of course, you can apply it to church things as well. What if I ask this person to church and they say no? So what? what? What is the worst thing that can happen in that scenario? They say no, they don't come. But imagine if they did, you might regret it if they said yes. That what if question just makes things so much bigger and more complicated than they are, you know? And a further thing to add, it's, it's the fear is the mind killer kind of thing. You, don't, you can't think about these things logically. Fear is the mind killer. You just, it's irrational sometimes. And one of the bigger things, because I realize not all of our fear is in what ifs, and sometimes it's a much bigger thing to just say, so what to, right? And you can't say that to every life experience that scares you. And the, the thing you can say in that scenario is, but God. 
knowing there is a but God in every situation. And it reminds me of a quote from Game of Thrones. And now, I, might, I have to say, first of all, I'm not a fan of it. I haven't watched it. I have friends who do. And as a nerd, I know certain things about it. And there is this really great line that um, Tyrion Lannister is basically talking to this other character, Ned Stark. And he's saying, I have great admiration for you. I have great admiration for you and the Night's Guard. And then the Stark, this other guy, smiles and says, my brother once told me nothing that comes before the word but really counts. And of course, Lannister smiles and says, but, and then continues on. Nothing before the word but counts. And it's the same with but God. Nothing counts before that but God bit. Nothing matters after that point. He is great and more powerful and sovereign over whatever it is you're dealing with. Like if we use that um, asking a friend out to church example again, like if I ask that person to come to church with me, what will happen? Uh, like it's a scary thing to do. But God is greater than that. But God loves them. They are a child of God. But God has a power to, you know, change people's hearts. But God has an ability to change their life. That's the kind of, like, mentality we, sh we can't really fathom sometimes. But God, there are so many things in situations. We can't fathom what he could do in that. And if you don't even take the time to let, give him room, let him, be, let him have the room to do the impossible, then that's never going to happen. Yeah. If you're just afraid and you never do the thing, then you're never going to get to the hope that God gives. Now, I've gone through 1 Kings 18, and before I end in prayer, I understand this was a lot to take notes on. Even for me, when I was writing it, I was like, how on earth can I apply all of this to my own life? Um, it's, it sometimes seems so, so big, and you know there are so many different things everyone's going through, and I understand that. Um, but there is a verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, which kind of simplifies the action we need to take and something we can live by daily. Just something that kind of get, gets you in the right direction and that, that right mindset. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it's only a sentence, but it gives a command that we can put into action. And I'll finish on this verse. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. In hope, be joyful in it. When there's affliction, be patient and wait for God's, God's ability to work in that. And be faithful in prayer. Be faithful in prayer. So, uh, I thank you, God, for your amazing ability, God, that you are sovereign over it all, that in times of fear you are there. In the darkest valleys, we can trust in you, God. I pray that you'll give us this, you will renew this hope, this relationship, the, the hope that we forget, this, the, the, the things that fear makes us forget, God, that you're above it all. God, I pray that we're able to to see you in these situations, to not have fear, have this control or this ability over us, God, that we recognize you in that situation yes. and that even though we may be limited by earthly things, you aren't, God. I pray that we see the hope in you in those fearful situations. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.